First Church family. It is good to be back with you all this week. Uh, this past week, uh, several of us had the opportunity to be up in New Hampshire to go visit some of our sister churches up there, do a little leadership training with them, and, and really got to see some of what God is doing up in uh, the New England states uh, through some of our churches, and it is exciting. And I bring you greetings back from them, and, uh, but it was exciting to be able to be, uh, be up there and participate in that. And so, uh, But it's good to be back. Uh, of course, we're one church with two locations. We have our Stone Canyon family meeting out at Stone Canyon Elementary joining us right now, as well as others who will join us online later. So would you all here at North Garnett welcome them into our time here this morning? We're glad you're here. All right. Hey, uh, we have been in this series, uh, Walk the Talk, over the last several weeks. Today we're going to be over in James chapter 4, if you want to get there. Uh, that's where we're going to be digging into here in just a moment. And I think as any time when we study God's Word, really to understand uh, the target of the author, whoever's writing this letter, uh, James in this case, uh, really to understand their target in, in what they're writing, we need to know the context, uh, we need to be able to look at the text around it to see, okay, where is he coming from and where is he trying to get to? Where is he trying to take his, his listeners? And we know that as you look back at the very beginning of this letter in, in, in book of James, uh, he says at the beginning he is writing to the church that is scattered among the nations, the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations, meaning the Jewish, Jewish believers, uh, followers of Christ who have been pushed out of Jerusalem, most likely because of the persecution that came from the time of Paul. Remember Paul, whenever he was Saul and he was persecuting the church, breathing out murderous threats, as it says. And, uh, and so these churches, Churches, these believers have been scattered out. James, being a leader in the church in Jerusalem, has getting seems to be getting word back from some of the things that are happening among the church out in the, in the surrounding region around uh, Jerusalem, and he's got some concerns. If you read through the, the letter, which hopefully everybody has done that, uh, as you read through the letter, you begin to see different topics that come out. It seems like James is addressing some. He he addresses gently, you know, like a, a loving father. Other times it's a little more harsh, a little more in your face. Come on, church, what are you doing? And, and really today we're hitting one of those texts, kind of a, a, an abrupt text uh, for us, the church, and for the church then. But again, that's kind of the context. What's he just been talking about? If we back up, go into James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, uh, right at the very end of that chapter, here's the two verses, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, you hear what James is saying. He's like, we ought to be a people of peace. I mean, three times he uses that word in there. I mean, peace. And, you know, if we're, if we're followers of Christ and we, we're gaining wisdom from above, we're led by the Holy Spirit, then, then peace ought to be how we live and, and the demeanor of our, of our life and how we treat others. Ought to be, we ought to be a people of peace. But when you shift gears into chapter 4, James seems to be saying, but that's not you. <laughs> that's not where you're at. You are supposed to be a people of peace, but instead you are a people at war. 
this past week while we were up in uh, New Hampshire, we had the opportunity to run down to, to Boston, my family and I, and, and uh, in Boston there's the Freedom Trail where you can, I mean, just tons of history uh, there, and, and on that Freedom Trail, you come across the Old North Church. If you know your American history, you know the, the Old North Church is the church where Paul Revere would, would go to, to to sound the alarm that the British are coming, the enemy is coming, and we are at war. One if by land, two if by sea. I mean, how many landers just throw up if, whenever you see the enemy coming? And, and so that's the church there. And he, Paul Revere sounded the alarm. We're at war. And it seems to be that's what James is doing in our text here today. Church, we're at war. Matter of fact, he, he identifies three different wars that the church is in, and he identifies it for them. The first one being this, that we are at war with each other. Oh, I told you he's in your face. Look at verse 1 there in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James, he goes into military terminology here. The word for quarrels there is wars. The word for fights is battles. And who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He says there are wars and there are battles among you. He doesn't say, hey, there's wars and battles between you all and the Gentiles or between you all and the unbelieving Jews, the people that you are now living in their region. There's war. No, no, no. There's wars and battles that are happening among you. And James's question is, what is causing it? It's sad that the early church was dealing with problems like that. I'm so glad the church today has moved beyond fighting with one another. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whether you're talking about a body believers here, you know, that we have our issues, we have our times, we go through those, or, or the one down the street, or whether you talk about entire denominations or denomination against denomination, we have all of our factions, and, all, and I, I have to wonder if it brings a tear to God's eye when he sees the division, the fighting, the warring that happens among his people. James is calling out the church, and he says, there's a war going on among you. What is causing it, is his question. And I believe James asks this probing question, not wanting a surface answer. I mean, don't, don't tell me it's the color of the carpet. Don't tell me it's the color of the pews. Don't tell me it's the style of the worship. Don't, don't give me a surface answer. James is saying it's something much deeper than that because it's the things that come from within that causes the conflict on the external. And so he asks that question. And so James goes on to say and to give them that reason that we're at war when he says the next war that we're a part of is that we're at war within ourselves. We're at war within ourselves. We're fighting battles on the inside and within our own hearts and he begins to identify these for them. Look at, keep going in verse 1. Again, what causes these quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He goes personal. He goes from talking about the corporate body of the church, now he's, he's drilling right down into the individual. Isn't it becomes because you have passions that are warring against you, that are, inside, that are, that are stirring things up inside of you? The, our, our external fights 
with others stem from the battles that we have going on inside of us. Again, military language there when he begins to talk about passions. And a matter of fact, that word passions that he talks about there is the word where we get the word hedonism. The idea here is that we are seeking selfish fulfillment, immediate fulfillment in our lives, immediate pleasure in our lives. And he says, you have these passions at war within you that are causing the external wars. Selfish desires within us are dangerous. Don't have to convince you of that. And every one of us have them. Nobody is immune to it. We've got desires within us that are stirring and they can cause us to sometimes go in a rage when they are not satisfied. Desire for power, desire for satisfaction, desire for significance, and the list goes on. And James begins to next deal, go a little bit deeper, and begins to identify a little more specific about the desires, these passions that that are in us. And again, he smacks us in the face here when he says, the one that we all deal with, the one that rears its head in in every one of our lives is the, the war of pride, pride, ego. That idea that I deserve better, I deserve more, I deserve what they have. I wish I had that because I deserve it. I almost, I almost always find myself at war when I'm filled with too much me. When I think way too highly of myself, and James again continues to, 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 to run with this idea. Look at verse 2, let's keep rolling. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see, he starts off by saying, our selfish desires lead to wrong actions. We we desire, and when we don't get it, then we murder. Whoa, that's a little extreme, James. Like, nobody's killing anybody here, you know, as far as we know. I mean, but maybe he's going off of, of Jesus' standard of murder. If you just are angry towards a brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Maybe he's going there. Maybe they are murdering people on that day. I hope you're not murdering anybody, church. But selfish desires can lead us to wrong actions. He takes it to this extreme. James does that throughout his whole letter. He, he likes to go on the extreme. You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You covet, you want, you envy what other people have. And if you don't get it, if you're not keeping yourself in check, you begin to get angry about it. Because I deserve that, and I want that. And selfish living can always get us into a fight. Our selfish desires not only lead us to wrong actions, but he goes on, he says, our selfish desires can even lead us to to no praying or wrong praying. Go go back to the very end there of chapter uh, 4, verse 2, the end of chapter 2, where he says, you do not have because you don't ask. You're not praying. You're not praying to God for it. And then verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You have the wrong motives even in your prayers. Either, either it's leading you not to pray. I'll do this on my own, God. I'll figure this out. I'll, you know, I'm, it, pride, okay? Or when you do pray, your prayer becomes a wish list. God, give me this. Give me that. Grant me all that I want. And, and what I need also, but give me all my wants. 
when we succumb to pride and selfishness in us. Even our prayers can go awry inside of us, inside of us. Fortunately, again, we don't deal with this, unless you're on social media. <laughs> because when we get on social media, what do we do? We start looking at everybody's highlight reel, right? Oh, I wish I was there. Oh, I wish I had that. Oh, I wish my house looked like that. Oh, I wish my wife looked like that. I wish my husband looked like that. I wish, my, you know, I wish, I wish, I wish, you know, it's like, oh, man. And we can get off of social media and just feel terrible about ourselves. But we think we deserve all those things. Researchers have said that people who pursue social media in such a way, uh, it can trigger feelings in them of misery, misery and loneliness. We really probably don't need researchers to tell us that, do we? Because maybe a few of us in here have experienced that. And it just feeds that self-centeredness, those passions within us that James is talking about. Selfish living and selfish praying always lead to war. James says we're at war with each other. We're at war inside of ourselves. And the last war he identifies is that we are ultimately at war with God. We're at war with God. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. (laughs) He doesn't hold anything back, does he? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, when I, you know, I've, I've preached through James, I've done studies through James, I've done this. And, and every time I read this, and it hit me again a couple weeks ago whenever I started on this, that, that, that verse, you adulterous people. Because I'm thinking, okay, he's talking to the scattered church that's really the tattered church because they've been bruised and they've been beaten emotionally, maybe even physically, they've been pushed out and into a new region. They're trying to, to figure things out with this new, uh, their new faith in Christ and dealing with an old theology of Jewish uh, theology and, and law and legalism and everything. They, they are in so many things going on inside of them. Man, shouldn't James, shouldn't you be a little bit more gentle. (laughs) He's not. You adulterous people. James, I mean, yeah, I can get a little prideful sometimes, but I'm not cheating on my wife. I mean, come on. You adulterous people. Most people that he's talking to in this letter, again, are Jews. They come from that Jewish culture. And when he when he calls them to the carpet and calls them adulterers, adulterers, actually he uses the feminine term adulteress, body of Christ, being the bride of Christ. I believe most of those Jewish listeners would reel back in their minds and think about the prophet Hosea. And if you know the story of Hosea, you know what God called him to. Hey, Hosea, I want you to go down to the red light district. I want you to go pick you out your wife. <laughs> prostitute. By the way, her name, she's got an awesome name. Her name's Gomer. <laughs> Let's make it a little worse here for you. Anyway, and so he does that. He goes down. He, he finds Gomer, and he brings her home, and he marries her, and, and they have a family together and go several years together, uh, and, and he brings her out of that life. But, but if you follow the story, he comes home one day, and she's not there, and he knows what's happened. She didn't run to Walmart. She went back down to the street, and God says, go back and get her. Bring her back. Forgive her. 
start over again. And this happens one time, two times, three times. And Hosea comes to a point, God, what in the world is going on? Why do you want me to do this? What's going on? And God just simply says, now you know. You know how it feels when somebody commits adultery on you. And you know how it feels, and from my position, to experience that hurt. And you also understand now how much grace I give to my people when they adulterate themselves from me. And I have to think that when James calls them adulterers, their minds are going back to that, oh, we're not where we're supposed to be with God. We're at war with him. Keep on going in that verse, you adulterous people. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word friendship that he uses there is, is much more than just buddy-buddy. But it's the idea of being bridled up to the world. It's having a, a relationship like a bride and groom. It's an intimate relationship that you're having with him. He says there, don't you know that being a friend with the world in that way makes you an enemy of God? You see, when we find ourselves in that place trying to, to walk with the world, be a part of the world, we can very easily find ourselves trying to remake God in our image. We try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in our relationship with God. And maybe if, maybe if I can just make God fit a little bit more what I want him to be, then, then I can make this work. But when we begin to transform God and morph God into our image instead of us into his image, what we have done is we have just declared war on God. And so in the next couple of verses, James seems to transition here a little bit to take us to where we need to get to be able to overcome these wars that we find ourselves in with each other, within ourselves, and with God. And in verse 5, he says this, Or do you suppose it is of, uh, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that, is, uh, that he has made to dwell in us? Notice the word spirit there is lowercase s. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit in us. He's talking about the spirit that is in every one of us as human beings. Everyone who walks this planet, every person that walks this planet has received the common grace of God to receive the spirit of life inside of us. In that scripture there, he says, hey, God jealously yearns to be in relationship with your spirit, with you to come to him. He's jealous for you. Go on to verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he, he wants you to come to him, and he will give you more grace. He will give you all the grace it takes to bring you into this right relationship with him. But the problem is, is your pride. God opposes the proud. The, your pride keeps you from him. But he gives grace to the humble. And now he begins to unpack what this humility looks like. If we're going to put away the wars that we find ourselves in. We're going to stop the fighting with one another and ourselves and God. It's going to take humility, and it starts with submitting to God. We've got to submit to God. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves there to, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, he shifts back to military terminology again here. The word, therefore, submit is to get into proper rank. 
You are acting like a general, but you're just a private. Understand where you're at. Humble yourself. Submit yourself. It's a posturing yourself before God. Receiving your orders from Him. He, you don't give orders to God. We don't give orders to God. We don't change God in our image. We allow ourselves to be changed into His image. He says, submit yourself to Him. Allow Him to change you. Allow Him to make in you what He wants to make in you. Submit yourself to Him. And when you submit yourself to Him, guess what? He sends you out on, the, on, on attack. That's the next part there. Submit yourselves, therefore, to him. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Now, I have to admit, most of the time, uh, growing up and for years even, I saw that as more of a defensive posture. Get your shield up. Satan's coming at you. Be on the defense. But as I was reading through this, I realized when we resist him, he flees from you. And if I'm on the defense, and he's coming at me, why is he going to flee from me? I mean, he's got me beaten down. I mean, he's coming against me. But if I come at him, if I go after Satan, if I go on the attack with the sword of the Spirit and the, and the Word of God, man, boom, let's go. And he'll flee is the promise that we have. When we submit to God, he sends us out on, on attack against our real enemy, not each other, but on our enemy, the devil, Satan. And all his cronies that are at work in this world. We've got to submit to God. At the same time, James keeps going. He says, we also need to draw near to God. Relationship. Military, we submit. Now in relationship, we draw near. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that promise. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The first part of that verse is so nice and friendly, isn't it? <laughs> draw near to God. He'll draw near you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, yeah, James is funny like that. Whenever I read that uh, first part there, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, I always think about the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. If you haven't read that story, go find that, read that. But I love that image when, that we, when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. If you'll remember the story, let me just kind of, Go over it just a little bit. He's, the son has gone away. He's wasted all of his inheritance and, and has finally in the, hit the bottom of the bottom of the pit, uh, recognizes his sin, wants to come back to his father, and he makes the journey back. And his father is sitting on the front porch looking over the horizon, and it says that he sees his son from a far way off. Remember that story? Maybe you remember that? And maybe you remember what the father does at this point. He stands to his feet, crosses his arms, and says, there's that good-for-nothing son. When he gets back here, I'm going to give him an earful. Oh, that's not what he does. He, he stands his feet and he runs. He runs to his son and he embraces his son and he welcomes his son back in. He's so excited that his son has returned and, and they throw a party. He lavishes him with, with grace. And that's the picture I get here that when we draw near to God, when we come back to us, he will draw near to us. He will come running to us. And so for us to do that, it takes us cleansing our hands, recognizing our sin, being repentant. It takes us purifying our hearts, not being double-minded anymore, trying to live in the world and trying to live in God, two, trying to do two separate things. Can't do that. He says, be single-minded, follow after God, draw near to him. He's your number one. And finally, we humble ourselves before God. Look at verse 9. Grieve 
mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Does anybody have that on a coffee mug? (laughs) That'd be an awesome coffee mug verse. Grieve, mourn, and wail. That sounds like mourning. All right. Um, No, those words there are typical prophetic words of humbling oneself under God's judgment. Mourning and wait, under, understanding the weight of our sin, understanding the hurt of our sin on our Father, on our God, and humbling ourselves before Him. Keep on going, verse 10 11. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, you could read this and this whole idea of humbling yourself before the Lord. And you say, well, isn't that kind of the same as submitting to God? I mean, that's kind of that posturing, humble. But it seems, and one commentator put it this way, we can submit on the outside but not be humble on the inside. We can position ourselves physically in submission, but on the inside still be very prideful. Humility is a position of the heart. It's like the little kid that got in trouble, maybe you've heard this, gets in trouble, sent to go sit in the corner, and he said, well, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You know, it's like, it's that attitude, you know. Yeah, physically I'm doing what you told me to do, but not on the inside. James says, humble ourselves, humble our hearts before God, recognize His majesty. Recognize that He's the one on the throne of your heart, not yourself. Put Him where He deserves to be. You see, when we come face to face with God, I don't think that we can help but to be humbled before Him. And when we live, I think what he identifies there in verse 11 is when we live in humility, then we talk different. Whenever he says there, uh, don't speak evil against one another. Well, when we're, when we're humble of heart, we tend not to speak evil against other and down towards other and against one another. When we're humble of heart, we treat others different there. Where he calls us, don't be the judge of your brother. Don't put yourself in a position of superiority over others around you. You don't do that when you're you're humble of heart. He says that changes, changes the way you are. Look at verse 12, final verse here. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one God. There's only one who is superior. And you're not it. It's God. So take yourself off the throne. Humble yourself. Be submissive to Him. Stop all the fighting. Submit. Draw near. Be humble. And put an end to the wars. Stop fighting against one another. Stop the wars that are inside of you. Surrender them to God. Stop fighting with God. Just draw near to Him. 
Now, before you write this message off as, well, that's a great message for the church today. <laughs> People ought to listen to that. That's great. Our church needs to quit fighting over that. And don't take this as a veiled message of, you know, passive-aggressive message because we have an issue in the church that's boiling up, and some of you need to listen up, and you need to figure this out, all right? It's not what this is, all right? We don't have anything boiling up in the church. I don't think so. Anyway. Um, no, this is just where James takes us because he's a no, he knows it's an issue within the church. But it's not just a church issue, is it? It's a heart issue within every one of us because our wars are not just fought within the walls of our churches. Our wars are fought, fought at our workplaces, in our families, in our marriages. And if you ask that question, what causes the quarrels and fights among you. And if you dive past the surface answers, well, he always leaves his underwear out. No, 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 no. That's not what causes it. What causes the itch, what causes the quarrels and the fights among you? Pride. Envy. Think you deserve better. says, humble yourself, submit yourself, allow God to lead you, allow God to lead you in the workplace, allow God to lead you among your family members, allow God to lead you within your marriage to be the husband and the wife that he has called you to be. And if you both approach one another with a spirit of humility and submission towards one another, now you're on track to have an awesome marriage and to stop all the fighting. Over in uh, Romans chapter 12, I love this verse. This verse hit me a while back, and I, actually this verse comes up every time I do premarital counseling. You didn't know this was going to turn into a marriage sermon, did you? Anyway, I didn't either. I didn't, it's not in my notes. Anyway, um, but Romans chapter 12, verse 18, I, I, I love where Paul takes it here. He says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love a double qualifier there. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Pursue peace. We live in a culture that is just abrasive. And we can get really abrasive behind our screens of anonymity where we can send out our little comments and everything about everybody. And we can, you know, we're not characterized as peace, a lot of peaceful a lot of times. But the call for us as followers of Jesus is to be a people of peace. Uh, what I, what, whenever I think about this letter written by James, do you know who James is? Do you know what James that most people attribute this letter to? James, leader in the church of Jerusalem. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Think about this one. There is probably no more credible writer in the New Testament than James, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus as his big brother. And now... He writes a letter and says, Submit yourselves to my brother. Humble yourselves before my brother. Draw near to my brother. What would it take for you to tell people to do that to your siblings? <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> I mean, I love my brother, but, you know, he ain't the Messiah, you know. 
James has come face to face with who Jesus is and the reality of who he is. And yeah, he's my brother, but there's no doubt. He's the Messiah. And James is not calling us to go anywhere that he hasn't already gone himself. To humbly submit himself to Jesus. And so that's our call today. Stop the fighting. Stop the wars. Let's humbly submit follow him. To walk the talk, it's going to take living humbly submitted to Jesus. There's enough fighting going on in the world around us. The church ought to be known as a people of peace. And if we're, like, if we're that, if we can get that, oh, we'll stand out. We'll be a light in the darkness and we'll make a difference. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that, uh, God, that we can drill in deep. We can go beyond the surface and we can see really what you're calling us to, this life of submission to you and hum- humility to you and just closeness to you, God. Help us, help us not to get so wrapped up in the surface junk that we allow to upset us because we're not dealing with what's inside of us. God, help us to deal with the, those things in us that are warring against us and our own enemy that's coming about us. God, help us to go on the attack and help us to, Father, walk in your ways, your ways of peace. God, in our workplaces, in our families, in our marriages, wherever we go, as far as it depends on us, God, help us to pursue peace. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.